as well. That's around the time I was first beginning to study early friends. And there were a number of, of displays in a room there at the conference, and one was on uh, war tax resistance. And I talked to the young man about my age, uh, and he explained more. I didn't know much about it, and uh, he explained, you know, uh, the rationale and, and how it works to me. He didn't throw a lot of statistics at me or a lot of rhetoric at me. He just explained it in a very simple, straightforward, and friendly way. And it was, it was just one of those moments of truth where I realized this is something I need to do. And sometimes it works that way, uh, completely out of left field, something I hadn't considered before any more than I'd considered being a, a minister uh, before the call came to me in 1968, as I mentioned earlier. Those moments of truth have a kind of clarity that, that moves us in a new direction. It's what we heard Sarah Jones and George Fox call the day of the Lord. There are moments that stand out in chronological time. I can tell you the year it happened, but it has its own privileged sense of time to it. It's like a grace note in musical notation. It takes up no space in the bar, but it inflects the music with something that transforms, gives it another dimension. Way back on Sunday morning, I told you a little bit about George Fox and how that year in prison in Derby transformed and radicalized him so that by the time he got out of prison in October 1651, he writes in his journal that he felt like a lion let loose from its den among the beasts of the forests. And he became much more confrontational after that year. This morning I want to look at one of those confrontational moments that, that he had. One of my favorite uh, accounts in the journal from the year 1652. Uh, a market day in the town of Kendall, Westmoreland, up in the north. Afraid we don't have our slide this morning. So I'll read I'll read how he describes that that event. <clears throat> so I returned back into Westmoreland again and spoke through Kendall on a market day. I had silver in my pocket and was moved to throw it out amongst the people as I was going up the street before I spoke and my life was offered up amongst them, and the mighty power of the Lord was seen in preserving, and the power of the Lord was so mighty and so strong that people flew like chaff before me and ran into their houses and shops. 
for fear and terror took hold of them. I was moved to open my mouth and to lift up my voice aloud in the mighty power of the Lord and to tell them the mighty day of the Lord was coming upon all deceitful merchandise and ways and to call them all to repentance and a turning to the Lord God and his spirit within them for it to teach them and lead them and tremble before the mighty God of heaven and earth for his mighty day was coming and so passed through the streets, and many, took my, many people took my part, and several were convinced. And when I came to the town's end, I got upon a stump and spoke to the people. And so people began to fight, for some for me and some against me. And I went and spoke to them, and they parted again. So after a while, I passed away without any harm. As I said on Sunday, early friends experienced the continuing national crisis in England as a spiritual crisis and one that they experienced very intensely uh, in their own spirit. And at a time when many people in England wanted to get back to life and business as usual, early friends kept ramping up the crisis and it made them very controversial and unpopular. They sustained a nonviolent direct action campaign that kept an open moment, a day of the Lord in English politics and religion. They kept the door open for God to do something special at great personal cost, some of them the cost of their lives. This scene in the market day in Kendall is, is one such skirmish in the Lamb's War of early friends. It suggests how adept Fox had, had become at creating such incidents and open moments, moments of decision, moments of truth. The streets would have been very crowded with people on that market day, the one, the main commercial day of the week a lot of buying and selling going on. Throwing out money among them was certainly a way to get attention. Sounds like a riot breaking out with people, some of them diving after the silver coins that he had thrown out and others running to get away from, from the chaos. But I suspect that throwing the money out there was not just a way of getting people's attention. It was a symbolic act in the prophetic tradition. It interrupted the buying and selling that was going on all around him in the market street that day. It created a jubilee moment of free gift in contrast to the quid pro quo of this for that. which resonated also with his teaching, his message about Christ coming to teach his people himself in contrast to the, the teaching of the university-educated uh, clerical class in the local steeple house. 
And in, in fact, he does refer in that passage to the, the teaching of the Spirit. But in addition, Fox and other early friends often did wade into marketplaces and inveigh against deceitful merchandise and ways, as Fox puts it here. This is a witness that continues the prophetic tradition going all the way back to Amos and Hosea in the 8th century before the Common Era, where they were uh, uh, complaining and giving the word of the Lord against balances that weren't quite right in the marketplace. And indeed, in the 17th century, in, particularly in northern towns like that, uh, merchants did sometimes cheat, particularly poor, simple country folk, as Fox puts it elsewhere. People that weren't adept uh, at bargaining, because you had to haggle uh, over the price of things. And they could easily fall prey to misrepresentation or bullying. And as some of you know, early friends were pioneers in the one-price system of trade. You set a price that you believe is fair, take it or leave it. For them, it was all of a piece with the other aspects of truth-telling and integrity. They didn't recite formal creeds. They didn't swear oaths creating a double standard of truth, and they didn't haggle. It's all of one piece, a seamless garment, as some early friends would call it. It revolutionized commerce in England, and friends succeeded very well as, as uh, traders and merchants. But Fox isn't offering a social critique or a set of economic reforms here. He's announcing the day of the Lord, calling people to tremble before the mighty God of heaven and earth. He speaks of this terrible day as coming, but clearly he's inducing that moment of crisis then and there in that market. He evokes God's awesome presence in that very moment. And in that moment, people are either drawn to him or fleeing away from him just as vehemently. A fight even breaks out among the people in this moment of truth that's, that's like, a, like the parting of the Red Sea. Fox ends the description saying that he got away this time unharmed, but in 1652, he didn't always get away unharmed. He was often beaten up, threatened with lethal weapons, and over the years spent more and more time in England's filthy, lousy, stinking prisons. He was lucky to survive as long as he did. What he's describing here is really classic nonviolent direct action. Unfortunately, because we began to frame over the years these stories as the beginning of our religious society of friends, we don't see the revolutionary aspect of what early friends were doing. And when Gandhi came along with nonviolent theory and practice for the 20th century, 
It's not surprising that friends were among the first to take to it in, in America because even though we didn't really understand that early history of our tradition very well anymore, it resonated unconsciously as well as consciously with the deep structures of our faith and practice. Richard Gregg had spent time with Gandhi and brought Gandhian nonviolent theory to the United States in 1934. His book, The Power of Nonviolence, was published in 1935, about the time he started teaching at Pendle Hill. He called in that book nonviolent action as moral jujitsu, a way of overturning the oppressor's assumptions, making the oppressor uncertain of his position and values. It creates an open moment, just like the open moment that Fox was creating there in the market day at Kendall. But it's more to, as, as something that we really know at the core of our being and can sustain in our social witness, it needs to be more than a moral jujitsu. It's the spiritual jujitsu that Sarah Jones was testifying to in that wonderful epistle to seekers in 1650 that we heard. Was that yesterday? No, David. No. Anyway. Uh, That's, that's what it, that spiritual jujitsu, being turned inside out and having your world turned upside down is what early friends were about. And I would, I would suggest that it's even more than spiritual, it's apocalyptic. Because it's the day of the Lord. It's, it's the kingdom breaking into the world as we know it. Creating an opening that we can move into and, and establish and begin to expand where we are and when we are in the world. Not apocalyptic in, in that usual way that we think of many uh, Christian groups predicting the end of the world just around the next corner, but in this experiential and socially engaged sense of the word, apocalypse now. I want to look at the deeper biblical resonances of Fox's use of the day of the Lord and the ways in which the early Quaker Lambs War was reconstituting the Holy War tradition in the Hebrew scriptures. Apocalypse, Holy War. I may have you running for the exits like the people on that, in Kendall that day. In particular, I want to draw upon uh, Norman Gottwald's uh, liberationist reconstruction of the early tribal period uh, of, of Israel, the, and, uh, including the, the exodus and, and, and conquest, so-called, uh, of, of Canaan, um, in his massive study, The Tribes of Yahweh, which was published in 1979. I have a, a summary of, of that massive book, some of the main points in the first chapter of, of uh, Covenant Crucified to set up ways of kind of rethinking what early friends were about. 
it's just amazing how Gottwald is able to rethink those ancient stories. He suggests that the, the group of liberated slaves that came out of Egypt was not the hundreds of thousands as they're counted in the book of Numbers, but a relatively small group. Uh, hundreds of thousands probably couldn't have lived in the wilderness uh, of the Sinai for 40 years. A relatively small group that did have some powerful experience of liberation from slavery out of Egypt and brought this up into Canaan and began to circulate among marginalized clans and tribes in Canaan with this message of a strange god who was not a force of nature or a sponsor of a royal dynasty, but a god known primarily through the experience of liberation. These liberated slaves from Egypt began circulating among these various marginal, marginalized clans and tribes around Canaan, people who had been exploited and marginalized by the Canaanite city-states, which were centered in, in, in walled fortress towns on the plains of, of Canaan. They were able to dominate the plains with their chariot armies, so these marginal groups tended to live up in the hills, and that's where the movement began, up in the hills, the margins. All great liberation movements begin from the margins, like northern England, like Galilee. And as they began to interconnect these, these tribes into a concerted movement, they began to move from the hills onto the plains and begin to isolate the fortress cities of Canaan. Gottwald interprets the fall of the city of Jericho in Joshua 6 as, as a symbolic representation of the way that this liberation process worked. As the story is told, Israelite spies infiltrated Jericho and found an ally in the prostitute Rahab. Rahab may be a historical figure, but she may also be a composite representative figure for many women who were forced into slavery or prostitution through debt in this exploitative Canaanite regime. Rahab informed the spies that the whole town was in dread of the Israelites. She tells them, quote, There's no courage left in any of us because of you. Yahweh, your God, is indeed God of heaven above and on earth below. So as the story is told, the Israelites marched for six days around, around the walled fortress of Jericho, shouting and blowing trumpets. Ram's horns. It would have been rather unnerving to the people inside. And on the seventh day, the Sabbath, they gave out a great shout. And that shout probably included something about the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. Gottwald believes that the day of Yahweh was a rallying cry of the liberation struggle. It was a day of liberation, a moment of truth and decision that interrupted the static, endless cycles of nature religion, which 
good in itself, had been subsumed by the priestly and, and royal uh, establishments of the Canaanite uh, society to be used for, for uh, uh, social control and economic exploitation. The day of the Lord was thus a crisis, a decisive moment breaking into that static world. And at that moment, as the story is told, and as the old spiritual puts it, the walls came tumbling down. The way the story is told, it sounds like it was just the sheer power of the Lord that breached the walls. But Gottwald suggests that it was actually sympathetic elements inside the walls that breached the walls. It was no less the power of the Lord but it was the power of the Lord working through the hearts and minds of people that this liberation message had reached. It's a moment somewhat similar to what, was, what Fox describes happening in that scene in Kendall that day, in that market day, when the, the, the structures of life and business as usual began to be breached, and those that were willing uh, were coming through the breach and ready to enact something radically new. Gottwald doesn't try to suggest that the liberation struggle uh, was entirely nonviolent by any means. But he does suggest persuasively that it took place a lot more by conversion than through uh, war and uh, death and destruction. That Canaanites were becoming Israelites uh, through joining in this new social reality and, and having faith in this strange new God, Yahweh. It was a new social and spiritual identity so that we can see Canaanite and Israelite as socially constructed identities, just as we're beginning to learn all over again that race and ethnicity are socially constructed. Well, there's not time here to go into more of Gottwald's uh, uh, reconstructions, but uh, it's, it's uh, enough to put a perspective on what Fox was doing in Kendall that day in 1652. The day of the Lord is an event waiting to happen in every day and age, in every place, every social context. And we see glimmers of it in moments like the Occupy movement, which occurred during the crisis of the financial meltdown and drew together a wide range of people who were either marginalized or working for causes and concerns that are marginal in the present system and continue to be marginalized by the, the capitalist juggernaut. They gathered and circulated around the fortresses of that regime, such as Wall Street, and there was a lot of shouting going on. I don't know about ram's horns, but there was a lot of shouting. 
Over time, the Occupy movement seemed to disperse and ebb away. But I think we need to see it as one episode in a larger liberation process that we continue to see and take part in, just the way the story of Jericho is probably uh, a symbolically developed story of a larger historical process that was going on in liberated Canaan. So we continue to be engaged in these moments of gathering around decisive places and times, like those that gathered at around the edges of the Paris Climate Summit, and those that are involved in transition movements around the world. There's a great resonance to be seen with, with, uh, with what early friends were doing, and even, even way back into the early Israelite saga. But I think we're still waiting for that kind of a revolutionary ideology or theology that can really catalyze these dispersed and very diverse movements into something truly revolutionary. A true social transcendence, I believe, is grounded in a spiritual transcendence, some kind of relationship with a divine other, a complete holy other that can relativize and link together our different forms of social otherness into something that can really work, something with power. Tomorrow, we'll uh, finish the series looking more fully at the Lamb's War, particularly through the life and experience and witness of James Naylor.